You know, the book of the prophet Ezekiel is full of these, these fantastic images. Uh, on one occasion in uh, chapter 47, Ezekiel describes a heavenly messenger who has come down and taken him to the Temple Mount, a little, little smallish hill in the center of the city of Jerusalem, from which you could see the entire Palestinian countryside. And as Ezekiel looks over at the temple, he begins to notice that the temple is leaking water from the front door. The water's leaking down past the altar and out the front door of the temple. And as it continues to flow to the east, it goes down the valley and into the wilderness beyond, getting deeper and deeper as it goes. But here's what's interesting. The amazing thing that happens, wherever the water goes, it completely transforms everything that's there. You begin to see trees growing up. You begin to see water uh, having fish in it. You even see salt water turning to fresh water and, and fish swimming in it. In other words, there is a total transformation of everything that happens around them because of what flowed from the temple. Now look, on our first day in this building, I began to think about the fact that every church has something that's kind of flowing from it, don't they? Unfortunately, a lot of what flows from churches isn't very life-giving. It's really life-robbing. But that's not what we want to be here at Christ Press. We've spent an entire month in July asking this question, what happens when the presence of God shows up in the midst of a people? And what we're going to find out in the next three weeks is that when God comes in, he sends his people out. And when they do, they are supposed to be transforming the world around them just like Ezekiel's river. So we want to look through the next three weeks some of the foundations of what it is that makes Christ's prayers tick. Uh, we, we, we distinguish between a vision and a mission. Our vision is a vision for a renewed Oxford, to be a city that is set on a hill for the entire state of Mississippi. Our mission is how we're going to complete that vision, and that is through proclaiming a hope, building a home, and launching a healing. And so each week, we're going to look at that phrase. And so this morning, we want to look and see what it means when Jesus says, or when we're saying, that we want to proclaim a hope. And we're saying it because of what Jesus says in this story. Because he's walking along the road with some of his disciples who don't recognize him. And of course, in, that midst, in the midst of that conversation, Jesus drops this little gem on them that completely changes the way they look at everything. And it happens there in verse 27. You know, Jesus sees them, they're despondent, they're freaking out about what happened. And all of a sudden Jesus says, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna have a little small group Bible study. And it's a small group that I guarantee everybody in this room would have killed to attend. Because here's what it was about. In verse 27 it says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. That's the key. And so I want to unpack three things that we get from this passage that let us know what we mean when we say that we want to proclaim a hope. Three things. We want to say, first of all, that Jesus thinks that the Bible has authority. Secondly, Jesus thinks that the Bible is about himself. And finally, Jesus thinks that the Bible has power. That's what this text is telling us. Let's dive into it. First of all, Jesus thinks the Bible has authority. By the way, this is where it's going to be very helpful for you to know a little bit of the setup to this conversation. Because Jesus asked these men what they're talking about. And of course, they're incredulous. Are you the only one who's not been here? And they tell them what just happened the last few days. But then they drop this in verse 21. 
But we had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. Okay, now look, that is a very packed statement, redeem Israel. What do they mean? Well, Jesus is speaking to a couple of men who have this really whole complex of culturally conditioned assumptions and biases and expectations about what the world was supposed to look like. And it's centered around them being God's chosen people. Every single Jewish person would have been told from the very beginning of their lives that they were unique in God's economy, that God was one day going to show up very powerfully in the midst of their suffering, defeat all of their enemies, and set the Jewish people up as the command center for the transformation of the whole world and setting the world to rights. But all of a sudden, these men are saying, we've got something that doesn't fit our cultural expectations. (laughs) Our women are telling us that this man rose again. Which, by the way, would be enough to make you question anything if you think about it. (laughs) That kind of miracle, if a man rose again from the dead, you got to rethink a lot about what you think about that man, don't you? But the funny thing is, is Jesus actually comes and says, if you're really going to understand who I am, you're going to have to question everything you previously thought about what I was going to be about. Because you've got to make room for who I really am. I really find this fascinating because what Jesus does is not what we would probably do. In other words, his first effect is not to shame these people. Are you serious? You still don't understand why I came. I told you again and again, leaving them with a guilt trip. Nor does he, on the other hand, look at them and say, you know what? All right, watch this. Okay. And pull out his magic wand and say, misunderstanding, be gone. And all of a sudden they're like, pow, what just hit me? That's not what Jesus did. You know what he did? Jesus said, let's have a Bible study. Let's go back and look at these scriptures again. And it's incredibly powerful. What these men needed more than anything else in the world was to go back to their Bibles and study it. They didn't need a guilt trip. They didn't need some miraculous experience. And so Jesus thinks that if there is someone who wants to encounter him in a powerful way, They will only do so as they see him in the Bible. Scripture alone. In other words, Jesus was fully aware, I think, that in the weeks to come, there would begin a season of history in human history where generation after generation of people who were curious about Jesus would encounter him with their own cultural expectations, born about by every different changing epoch of human history. How, though, will they know that they have the real Jesus and not a figment of their own imagination? Because they found him in the scripture. Hey, look, what's the lesson before we go into point two? It's real simple. Jesus is all you need this morning. The Bible is everything that you need. You are not in need this morning of a book to teach you how to have a better prayer life. You're not in need this morning of a marriage seminar that'll help you sort of get some new insights into your marriage. You're not in need of a book entitled... Five steps to an obedient teenager. As great as all those things are, if those things are not rooted in the scripture, you've missed what Jesus is saying. That everything that I'm about, everything you need to know about me, you can find in the Bible. Jesus unpacks this in a wonderful way in a story he tells in Luke chapter 16. It's a parable that he tells about a rich man who lived very lavishly as a person and ignored the needs of a beggar inside his property. 
who the text tells us is named Lazarus. Well, apparently they both die on the same day. And because the rich man ignored the needs of the poor man, he finds himself in eternal torment. While Lazarus, it goes up to be comforted by a character we're introduced as Father Abraham. Well, there's this brief discussion between the two people about the inevitability of their newfound situation. When all of a sudden the rich man says, hey, look, I actually have five brothers. Would you be willing to send Lazarus back to them? Because they apparently were living the exact same lifestyle that he did. And would you warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment? To which Father Abraham responds this. Well, I wouldn't worry about your five brothers. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Can you imagine how disappointing that must have been to the rich man? Oh, okay. No, no, no. You don't understand. What my brothers need is something that'll wow them. I mean, they're just complacent. They need something powerful. They need this big show with, with, with Steven Spielberg special effects to kind of rock them into, uh, into awareness. But Jesus will not be deterred. He goes, nope. If they will not hear the Bible, Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen even if somebody rises from the dead. Well, who's Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself. He just rose from the dead and he knows that it's still going to go on the hearts of hard-hearted, difficult hearing people. Look, the point is this. In in order to encounter the real Jesus, it's got to come through his word because otherwise you're not going to have anything that will begin to chip away at the calcium deposits that form around our own hearts every week. And so the scripture is the only need. What the Bible is saying is, is all you need is my word. That's the first thing. Jesus says the Bible has authority. But secondly, Jesus thinks that the Bible is also about him. He thinks it has authority and it's also about him. You know, it's funny. As we grow up, we listen to people telling stories. And we kind of expect the stories people to tell to be stories with a moral. You know what I'm saying? Uh, When I was a kid, I used to love hearing the story about the tortoise and the hare and the race they had. And of course, the moral of the story was, you know, don't start to think too highly of yourself because if you snooze, you lose. Uh, You know, there's another story about the boy who cried wolf, right? The moral of the story is you better be careful because eventually your lies will end up hurting you as much as they hurt the people that you're lying to. Now, I think that probably has a normal place in regular Christian parenting. There's no problem with stories with a moral. But there is a problem if you take that same kind of thinking to the stories of the Bible, Because Jesus does not think that that's the way you're supposed to read these kinds of stories, as if they're somehow like Aesop's fables, stories with a moral. So you're reading through the Old Testament about the great Jewish general Joshua, and you say, well, what's the moral of that story? Well, we should be the kind of people that march into the land and slay our own giants too. Is that what that story is about? Look, if you end up taking sort of the Aesop's fables version of this, you're going to run into a lot of problems, the first of which is this. The Bible spends a lot of time with the heroes of the Bible, not just talking about the good things that they did, but a whole lot of the awful things they did in order to keep you from thinking that the story really is about them being moral examples. You know, even Father Abraham himself lies about his wife, saying that she is his sister, not his wife. Now you get along to Moses. Moses flies off at the handle at, his, at these rebellious people and ends up not even being able to go into the promised land. Oh, and King David? <laughs> King David has a lurid affair with Bathsheba, even to the point where he murders her husband. Of course, in the New Testament, you've got the Apostle Peter who abandons Jesus at his most vulnerable point. 
Why is the Bible doing this to all of its heroes? It's trying to say, that's not what these stories are about. And Jesus leads us to it. Because what he says, look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let me put it this way. These Jewish people had been reading the Bible as if it was about them. You know, you read sort of, you know, what's going on with, uh, uh, with David. And we think, oh, we're supposed to slay the giants in our life because look at what he did to Goliath. But Jesus is saying, no, that's not what's happening. You, don't, you have a whole new grid that you've got to look through to see it as being ultimately about me. In other words, if you're going to sort of get through all of the cultural biases that we have when we look at the Bible, you're only going to do so if you see that Jesus is answering the question about what the Bible means. He will say, look, every single prophet in the Old Testament is pointing to the true and better prophet. Every priest is pointing to a great high priest that will one day come. Every king is looking to the true king. Every servant to the true servant. Every hero to the real hero. Every liberator to the ultimate liberator. And look, if you read the Bible as if it's ultimately about Jesus, you'll keep the Bible from actually doing the opposite of what it could do you if you read it about as if it's yourself, if it's about yourself. If the Bible is all about me, then the Bible is nothing more than a giant, big, wagging finger telling you to do better next time. You read the Bible that way and you walk away from it feeling crushed, shamed, disempowered. Look, frankly, I I was in campus ministry for 25 years before taking this, this, this position. And I can tell you, it's countless how many times I've heard parents and pastors alike say, oh my goodness, these universities today. Kids go off to college and they abandon the faith. What are we, boy, what's going on on these colleges today? Hey, you ready for this? It ain't the college's fault. It's what we taught them about the way to look at the Bible. Because what happens is, as soon as your young person gets to college and they live in sort of some mildly secular context, they'll find out that there's tons of people around them who are not living with the same shame-motivated behavior that they lived with up until that time. And they walk away from the faith, but they were set up to do so by us not walking them through what the scriptures are about. So what's the alternative? Well, the alternative very simply is, is when you read the stories of the Bible, they're about Jesus. Let's say you get to the story of Moses. I've read book after book that tries to suggest that the story of Moses is actually a study in Christian leadership. Volumes have been written about that. That's not what it's about. What you see in the life of Moses is a broken, struggling person who learned along the way that his people were not going to survive if he did not stand in between them. Why? Because one day there would be someone who ultimately stood in between God and his people. You get to King David and you're not sort of worried about whether or not you know, the slaying of Goliath is the giants in your life. It's about the ultimate fact that he's the only one who could slay the giant. And he did because you can't and you won't. Suddenly we begin to realize that that's hope giving. That's what we mean when we say that at Christ's prayers we want to be a place that is proclaiming hope. We've, the scriptures are to move us toward Jesus rather than further away from him. Now, does that mean that we're not going to experience conviction of sin? Of course we will. But on the other side of being laid low by his holiness, 
There's not a God who's looking at us being, saying to us, okay, let's just, you just try to do better next time. Rather, we've got one who said, I've paid it all. He looks at us and says, look, this law over is killing you. And so I'm going to allow myself to be crushed by it in your place so that when I'm raised from the dead, you can be truly free to serve me from joy and not from slavish fear. That's different. That's our hope. And it leads me to my last point. Jesus not only thinks that the Bible has authority, first of all, he not only thinks that it's about him, but he also thinks that the Bible has power. Look, to wrap this up, look at what happens to these disciples. It's funny. In this sense, the disciples kind of are an example to us. Look what they say there. They say in verse 31 and 32, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Come on, that's a little funny. A person just vanished from their sight. But you know what they're talking about? <laughs> they're talking about the Bible study still. What happened? Well, they told us that their hearts began to burn. I love those two images. The image of the heart and the image of a burning fire. Let's unpack that for a second. Think about what a fire does. A fire kind of has two roles, does it not? On the one hand, a fire is there to consume. It's there to flame. And you know sort of when a fire sort of builds up because it begins to refine you. You know when your heart begins to burn with the Holy Spirit because the kinds of discussions that you thought were important to have before, they just kind of seem less important. You'll know because your, your defensiveness starts to look really petty and immature. The fights that you used to get in with your wife and with your kids, they actually start to look more like your problem than their problem. Has that ever happened to you? But fire has another function, does it not? It also is a place of light and comfort. You know, a fire is the most beautiful thing to stare into. And you can just look at it for hours. Why? Because it's always changing, always glowing and shifting and delighting. Look, you'll know when your heart is burning within you, when it's warmed and you begin to find that there's a wellspring of comfort inside of me so I'm not always dependent on the people around me to fill up this bottomless pit of encouragement. Because I'm not as panicked as I was before about the potential loss of my job. Why? Because he loves me. I'm not as disappointed about the loss of the relationship I had. And yes, I'm disappointed about it, but you know what? I'm not devastated by it. That's the difference. Has that happened to you? And thirdly, they say that this all takes place in the heart. And you've heard me talk about this a lot, and I will keep talking about it. Because when the Bible uses that word, the Bible is talking about that place inside of you where you treasure things. That's what Jesus said, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. The Bible assumes that you have a mechanism inside of you that is locking onto seeking things of value, seeking things of fascination, things of joy. And the sum total of your life, please hear this, is nothing other than the discharge that comes from that fascination. Let me say that again. The Bible assumes you have a heart and it's locking onto something and what you are as a human being is no greater or no less than the discharge from that one singular fascination. The Bible will come to say that there is a place that you worship regardless of whether you go to church or not and that's the function of your heart 
And these men are saying, now I found something to be fascinated by because I've heard what the Bible teaches about the man Christ Jesus and did not our hearts burn within us. Has that happened to you? <laughs> but Christ's prayers is nothing if we are not a group of people who, for whom our hearts have burned within us. We believe here that if you stick a Christian in the crucible of pain and fear and failure, it is highly likely that they will act just like every other kind of person. But the proof will be in the pudding that when that pain has done its work, there is a humble, broken, but joyful person on the other side. That's the state of a Christian. And Christians have been going through this experience for millennia. Uh, and the stories abound. I, the, the story I picked the, the, that was my favorite comes out of John Wesley's journal, the great uh, founder of modern, me, modern Methodism, who was dragged one night to a Bible study. Listen to what happened to him. He says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society at Aldersgate Street where there was someone who was reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. At about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Wonder where he got that phrase. And I felt that I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Guys, you can tell that story over and over and over again. Now look, for Wesley, it was this sort of singular, one moment in time, incredible transformation. For me, it's been a very gradual thing. God, for whatever reason, has chosen to unfold that in very gradual senses. But here's the question. Are we a group of people who are proclaiming a hope and being a group of people that has said our hearts have burned within us because we found a hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's contained in the Holy Scriptures. Does that describe us? Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, we ask that it would, even at this moment, that it would even now be drawing us to yourself by that same thing that drew these disciples. That perhaps maybe even for the first time, the Scripture would cease to become a big wagging finger looking at them, but rather would be the place where 